Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Terry from Texas with another Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to take a moment to recognize one of my listeners down in Australia. Shawnee sent me a message that he really enjoys listening to the show and he admitted to liking a particular poem that I read early on. So in honor of this Australian fan, I'm going to read some mysteries from Australia. And if I mess up the pronunciation, please forgive me. The first story I want to talk about is the Luna Park Ghost Train Fire. In 1979, a happy family was waiting for a ferry to transport them to Luna Park, which was a popular amusement park located in Sydney. Jenny and John Godson looked forward to this moment for a long time, wanting to spoil their two young sons with a fun day out. After having visited the Taronga Zoo, they finally made their way to Luna Park where they had a whale of a time going on all the different rides the park has to offer. At the end of the night, though, the family had to make a final decision before leaving for home. Which ride would they spend their final ticket on? Luna Park's Ghost Train was a train-style amusement ride designed and constructed in 1931 at Luna Park, Glenelg. The ride was transported to Milson's Point along with all the other rides and reassembled prior to Luna Park, Sydney's first opening in October 1935. The boys decided on the ghost train and headed off to the ride with their father while their mother went off on a short detour for an ice cream. When she returned a few minutes later, she walked into a nightmare. Instead of seeing her husband and two boys having a fun ghost train ride, she saw smoke billowing from the train as it hurtled down the track and park employees trying desperately to get people off it each time it emerged from a tunnel. Jenny's husband and two boys, along with four other passengers, didn't make it out. The Sydney Ghost Train fire on the night of June 9, 1979, broke out inside the ride at approximately 10.15 p.m. Due to a combination of low water pressure, 
understaffing within the park, and inadequate coverage of the ghost train by the park's fire hose system, the fire was able to completely consume the ride. It took an hour to bring the fire under control, but it was extinguished before any significant damage could be done to the adjacent River Caves and Big Dipper. About 35 people were believed to have been on the ride when thick smoke began to escape from the tunnel doors. Ride staff raised the alarm and began to pull people from the ride as their cars exited the tunnel. It was initially thought that everybody had escaped the fire, but at around 11.30 p.m., the bodies of seven people were found inside. John Godson and his two children, Damian and Craig, and four Waverly College students, Jonathan Billings, Richard Carroll, Michael Johnson, and Seamus Raleigh. At the time of the fire, investigating police speculated that the seven had climbed out of their cars and unsuccessfully tried to find their way out of the tunnel. Had they stayed in the cars, they might have survived. Others evacuated from the ride reported seeing empty cars exiting the tunnel on fire. Originally, the fire was blamed on electrical faults, but arson by unknown figures has also been claimed. The exact cause of the fire could not be determined by a coroner's inquiry. The coroner also ruled that, while the actions of Luna Park's management and staff before and during the fire, in particular their choosing not to follow advice on the installation of a sprinkler system in the ride, breached their duty of care. Charges of criminal negligence should not be laid. The case was reopened in 1987, but no new findings were made. Although the police investigation and the coroner's inquiry were criticized, the fire forced the closure of Luna Park until 1982, when it reopened under a new name and under new owners. A memorial garden was installed by Luna Park in 1995, but during a 2003 redevelopment, its fixtures were lost. In replacement, a plaque listing those killed was placed on the location of the ride, but a promised mural to surround the plaque was never painted. A separate memorial park was created by North Sydney Council in 2007, including a sculpture by Michael Lunig. Sometime after the tragedy, Jenny came across the photos that were taken during that horrible day and stopped to stare at one in particular, a picture of her son Damien, the last one ever taken, shows the little boy shyly posing next to an intimidating figure wearing a demonic-looking mask with horns on his head. They were unable to locate the men later. After the fact, comparisons were made between the figure and the god or demon, depending on which way you look at it, Moloch. It is believed that Moloch preferred children to be burned alive as sacrifices. Could this have been a sinister way to offer up human sacrifices to an ancient god, or was it just deliberate arson in a business dispute, as some others have claimed? Jenny Godson believed something evil was at work, but the mystery of exactly who the horned, masked man remains. In May of 2007, Anne Buckingham, a niece of Sydney underworld figure Abe Saffron, claimed in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald that her uncle was responsible for the fire. Saffron had been associated with seven other arson attacks in the two years following the ghost train fire, although he had repeatedly denied involvement with the ghost train. 
Buckingham claimed the attack was part of a plan for Saffron to gain control of Luna Park's lease, although she stated her belief that the seven deaths were not intended. Former park artist Martin Sharp claimed that Saffron had approached Luna Park's owner, Ted Hopkins, several years before the fire, offering to buy the park. In 1985, it was claimed by New South Wales MP Michael John Hatton that Saffron had beneficial ownership of the park, resulting in an inquiry which concluded that although people related to Saffron were involved in supplying pinball and arcade games to Luna Park, Abe Saffron himself was not linked to the ownership of the park. Buckingham later denied she made the comments attributed to her and demanded the story not be published, although the Herald claims her original statements were recorded on tape during a face-to-face -face interview. The New South Wales Attorney General has stated the coroner's inquiry could be reopened, but first would require the submission of new evidence by the police. The Mysterious Vanishing of Rihanna Barrow October 7, 1992 began like any other usual day for 12-year-old Rihanna Burrow. Her mother, Paula Burrow, got ready for work, kissed her daughter goodbye, and headed off at 8.30 a.m. from their peaceful home in the suburb of Morfitt Vale, South Australia. It was looking to be a rather good day, actually, because Rihanna was in good spirits as she had been excited about a pen pal she had made in the United States, and she had, on that day, been planning to go down to the nearby shopping center to buy a Christmas card. Unfortunately, there was a bus strike at this time, so the girl told her mother that she would instead walk to a nearby news agency. It was a safe neighborhood, and the shopping location wasn't far so there was no reason to think that anything could possibly go wrong. And Rihanna's mother certainly did not have the slightest idea that hugging her daughter that morning would be the last time she ever saw her, or that Rihanna would go on to become one of Australia's most perplexing unsolved mysteries. Paula would return from work at 4.10 p.m. to find the front door locked, the TV blaring in one of the rooms, a record that had been carelessly thrown on the floor, other items out of place, and the Christmas card set upon the table. By all appearances, it seemed that Rihanna was home, but a quick look through the premises showed no other sign of the girl, and since none of her belongings were missing, this was quite strange. It was not usual for Rihanna to stay out late without saying anything to anyone, so it was definitely odd. But she had obviously been home from her shopping trip, and it seemed as if she had just stepped out for a second. Concerned but not really panicked at this point, Paula called up some of her daughter's friends and asked around with some neighbors, thinking she might have gone to a friend or a neighbor or lost track of time, but no one had seen her. By 6 p.m., Paula was getting increasingly worried, and it was then that she would contact authorities to declare Rihanna missing. Police would look into it and start to get a picture of Rihanna's movements during the day. They discovered she had been seen leaving her home and walking towards the shopping center at 10.30 a.m. and that she had made it to the shopping center and purchased the card at 11.19. She had then been seen by witnesses alone, cutting through both Morfitt Vale High School and Stanvac Primary School along Highway Drive while holding a small shopping bag at 12.30. But after that, her movements are murky, and this would be the last known confirmed sighting of her. It does seem that she had made it back to her home safely, 
but at what time or what had happened after were complete mysteries, and still are. So began a massive law enforcement effort to find out what happened to young Rihanna Burrow, with countless flyers sent out and the story splashed all over the newspapers and TV, as well as a reward for any information that would climb up to a million dollars eventually. And although there were hundreds of calls from people giving tips and leads, it did little to illuminate the mystery. It seemed as if Rihanna had simply stepped off the face of the earth. One of the only useful pieces of information that would turn up over the ensuing weeks was a witness who claimed to have seen the missing girl standing alone at an intersection about 500 meters from her house, just 10 minutes before her mother had come home. But this cannot be confirmed and ultimately led nowhere. There was also information dug up on supposed suspicious activity from a white car seen in the vicinity with Victorian plates and a single male inside it. But neither the vehicle nor the driver have ever been located by police, and what connection they might possibly have to the vanishing remains unclear. That's about all that was ever known then or now, and Rihanna Burrow has never been found or seen again. In the absence of any clear answers, theories, of course, abound. Considering that the house was locked, that there had been no sign of a struggle, nothing was missing, and the girl had obviously returned home from her shopping trip, one idea is that she might have been abducted by someone she knows and felt safe with. In this scenario, she might have been lured away by this person, after which she had been forcibly whisked away and quite possibly murdered. One detective on the case has said of this, She does appear to have left the house in an orderly manner. There was no break and enter, there wasn't a struggle, and the house wasn't a mess. There is an absence of any neighborhood disturbance, screams, anything like that in the vicinity that day. It certainly opens up the possibility that she may have known the person or had some reason to be comfortable with that person maybe. That is one possibility we're looking at. I would assume that if she's on the street, there would have been someone in the vicinity who would have heard that. My feeling is that it was somebody she knew. That's what I can't understand. The lack of any sort of evidence or violence or disruption is certainly a curious detail to the case, as is the detail that she had locked the door behind her on her way out. Although considering the disarray of the record collection and the record discarded on the floor, it seems that she may have been in a rush, although as to why this might be, no one has a clue. Another idea is that she might have left the house on some unknown errand, which would explain why she had locked the door, and then been abducted by someone she didn't know after that, perhaps a pedophile or other nefarious party while she was gone. This would also shed light on the alleged sighting of her on that intersection. But why would she be out there? Was she waiting for someone? If so, why? Also, if this were the case, why would there be no witnesses to it at all? Someone could have also come to her home and snatched her when she answered the door. But if this were the case, why would the door be locked? And why wouldn't any neighbors have heard or seen a struggle of any kind in this quiet suburban neighborhood? 
There have been no reports of anything out of the ordinary that day, and no sightings at all of the girl leaving the house, so it seems odd to say the least. There is, of course, the idea that she may have just run away from home, but there's absolutely nothing in Rihanna's history or personality that suggests she would do such a thing. She was, by all accounts, a responsible, law-abiding girl. She was happy with her life and respected her mother. Indeed, it is believed that the girl would not have even left the house without asking her mother first. She simply does not fit the profile of a runaway. And one investigator has said of this, it was just too clean cut. We looked into her background in the initial stages and found out she was not an adventurous girl. She was a family girl and could be trusted. She didn't have a boyfriend and would not have run away. So the more we learned of her family history, I was convinced she had met a horrible fate. What happened to Rihanna Barreau? Where did her path lead her that fateful day? How is it that no one saw her for half of a day or witnessed anything happen to her in this quiet suburb? Was she kidnapped, murdered, led away? If so, by whom? Why was her house left intact and locked as if she were coming back any minute? Did she leave on her own to never come back for reasons we'll never know? No one really knows and her tragic case remains unsolved. This one's a good one. Wailing at Wilga Waterhole. Blood-curdling screams in the dark of night. Suddenly there came a soft, distant wailing that grew rapidly nearer and louder. The cries appeared to be in different keys, devilish, unearthly shrieking, such as no human voices ever uttered. The screaming, now ringing in their ears at deafening pitch, was coming from the water hole. The shearers thought their eardrums would burst, but they were too terrified to move. Then, to their relief, the shrieking diminished in volume until it was merely a weird wailing. Moments later, it ceased utterly, and once more, the bush was deathly silent. This was how Bill Beatty, writing in the Sydney Morning Herald of 4th of January, 1947, described the experience of two shearers camped by the notorious Wilga Waterhole in central western Queensland sometime before the 1890s. After the screams had subsided, the two shearers quickly packed their camp, gathered their horses, and rode off into the night. When the men told their story at the shearing shed, it was received with derision by most, but others mentioned that the Wilga waterhole was a notorious spot and that the aborigines always avoided it. Some of the old shearing hands said that horses were scared of it, and drovers admitted that they never could get cattle to rest there. There were instances where cattle driven from distant parts had arrived there almost exhausted, but had stampeded at sundown, wrote Beatty. The old shearing hen stories of spooked animals appeared to be corroborated time and time again. One account from a local of many years who had himself heard the eerie, ear-piercing screams by the waterhole 
was typical. I do not believe in ghosts, he said, but I have heard the screams which have been so much discussed wherever Western men congregate, and I know for a fact that stock will not camp on the banks of the Wilga waterhole, the man wrote. On one occasion, I tried to camp a mob of old cows quite close to the waterhole. Most of them were milkers, and I thought that nothing would frighten them. Everything went well till about 9 p.m. Then they started to rush and ring. In the morning, we were a good three miles from camp. The horses that also made a break during the night were found badly wrung with the hobbles standing shivering in a corner about five miles from the camp. Six years prior to Beatty's article, another author explored the mystery of the whaling at Wilgo Waterhole in the Sunday Mail. He recounted the story of a man employed at the time by the nearby Ruthven Station who had built a slab hut on the banks of the waterhole in which he intended to live with his wife. They did not last in that place for long. Writing of the man's wife, she was a strong-minded woman, previously without hysterical tendencies, accustomed to loneliness, having been in the bush all her life. For a while, all was well for the couple living by the waterhole, until one night. The station hand, having been delayed, rode home to find his wife in a state of collapse. She could tell him nothing of any apparition which had frightened her. She had seen nothing, but she had heard the most appalling shrieks arising from the waterhole and going back to the waterhole to end as suddenly as they had begun. At that time, the station hand knew nothing of the evil reputation of the Wilga waterhole. He felt she had imagined the cries of some nocturnal bird to be ghostly shrieks and yells. Not long after this episode, he was away for two nights. He arrived at the hut early on the morning of his return to find that his wife was in a semi-demented condition. Again, she told between fits of hysterical sobbing of the shrieking and wailing and screaming from the waterhole. Forthwith, he took her away from the hut, and after that, no one ever lived in it again. The station hand told his fellow workers the reason for their sudden departure from the hut, but those shearers who were new to the district refused to believe it. Emboldened by their skepticism, those out-of-town shearers decided to camp a night by the waterhole. Over a roaring log fire, they sat and swapped stories and waited, their skepticism growing with each hour that slipped by. About 11 o'clock, a wild bellow brought every man to his feet, and the party spread out to see what manner of beast had uttered it. And there was laughter, when it was found that the bellow had come from an old bull wandering in the neighborhood. Billies were put on the fire, and the panacea for all bush crises was brewed. After drinking their tea and smoking and yarning some, for some time longer, it was announced by one man that midnight was almost with them, and that if anything was going to happen, it would, following all ghostly tradition, happen soon. It was unanimously decided that once midnight passed, all would declare the ghost of the Wilga waterhole to be non-existent, turn into their blankets and sleep. Midnight passed. Not even the voice of the old bull broke the bush silence. 
Accordingly, yawning and stretching, the shearers put away their pipes, rolled themselves into their blankets, and settled down beside the dying fire. Every man was soon asleep. None of them heard the first distant wail, but in a few seconds, as the wailing increased in pitch, every man was out of his blankets and on his feet. There came to their astounded ears yelling and wailing and screaming, as if made by innumerable persons, and of such a volume and nature that it could not have been uttered by any animal or bird of the bush. They decamped, some not even waiting to gather their blankets. It was said of the party that the fastest runner got back to his bunk at Ruthven first, and the slowest prayed for wings. So will the real Wilga ghost please stand up? As with many folkloric tales, the apparent supernatural source of the wailing at the Wilga waterhole had a number of origins, depending on who recounted the story. Perhaps the one thing we can be certain of from the various versions of the story is that the Wilga waterhole had a violent and deadly past. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I thank you for being along for the ride and be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. And on Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. And on Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. And on alternating Thursdays, or every other Thursday, however you want to look at that, we have Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.